it's funny in a very tragic way. Wow, that seems really hot. Um, just how extremely easy it is for us to forget that God is our way maker. That he works miracles. He created everything. He's never broken his word. And yet, so quick we are to forget. And if we can't see it, it must not be. Today in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, we're going to see a story that we all knew was coming. It's the, it's the crux of what we're seeing in the book of Numbers. And yet, it's still heartbreaking and tragic to see it. I'm going to read part of our text today. We're actually going to be looking at Numbers 13, uh, verse 1 through verse 38 of chapter 14. I'm not going to read all of that together here. But I'm going to read portions of it. You can follow along in your text. And as we... As we do this, as, as we look at this, I want to encourage you to let it really hit you. Let it sink in what's going on. And I'm, I'm going to try to, to draw you into it and, and help you to see it, but you're going to have to let your minds go there. Because when we, when we see familiar texts, familiar stories, things that, that we've heard, whether through sermons or our own reading or through movies, uh, it's easy for it to just become comfortable. And this should be anything but comfortable. Hopefully you've had time to turn to Numbers 13. Let me, <clears throat> let me read the first few verses here, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 17. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. He goes on to list their names. Jump ahead to verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev, go up into the hill country, and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring, home, uh, bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from, from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, and they came to the valley of Eshkol, 
and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster that, that the people of Israel cut down from there. Jump ahead, if you would, to chapter 14, verse 26. Oh, actually, stay there. Let me finish that out. I didn't go as far as I planned. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land which you sent, to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. However, the people who, who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Now jump to verse 26 of chapter 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore I would, take, I would make you dwell. Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years. And shall suffer for your faithlessness. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land. Forty days, a year for each year. You shall bear your iniquity forty years. And you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end. And there they shall die. This is the word of God. Thanks be to the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we open your word today... We read this grave and solemn story 
And I pray that you would break it upon our hearts and minds in a fresh new way. Father, protect us from anything that would exalt itself above the knowledge of you, whether the world, the flesh, or the devil. Lord, protect us from being deceived or distracted or discouraged. And Lord, protect us against human opinion. May you speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue so that we would hear from you by your Spirit who gives us your word and opens our hearts and minds to it. Not from any man. Father, help us to learn from this story. Help us to not be like them. These things we pray in the transforming name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for a long time now, I've thought that the second most sad and disappointing word that I know is potential. It seems to almost always be used with the term but to indicate that the potential of good in a, in a thing or a person has not been realized. That used to strike me all the time as a coach talking about some kid's potential. That kid had so much potential but... Uh, it's that idea that there was something there that didn't come to fruition. It, it wasn't realized. But I've come to believe that there's one word that's even sadder. Almost may be the saddest word there is. I almost made the catch. We almost won. I'm a Bears fan. We've said that a lot over the years. I almost cleared that giant puddle I tried to jump over. I almost got out of the way of that bus. Or the tragedy of being almost persuaded of the gospel. Almost saved. Almost doesn't do much for us. Except to remind us of what could have been. If I try to jump, jump across the Grand Canyon, it does not matter how far I get. If I don't get to the other side, almost still ends in splat. Same is true in our spiritual lives. That is a heartbreaking thing, to be so close, yet so very far away. To see the prize right in front of you fail to grasp it how tragic that is that's exactly where we find israel in numbers 13 and 14 it's it's right there it's right there in front of them they, god's brought them out of egypt he, he spent a year teaching them the law in sinai he's brought them across you're only like a year and a half less than two years away from god bringing you out of Egypt, splitting the Red Sea, all of the ten plagues, all these amazing things. God's watched over them the whole way. 
He's been promising since Abraham to bring them into this promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now it's there. You can, you can smell it. You can almost taste it. But they're so consumed with their own understanding, their own strength and ability, or inability, lack of strength, that they fail to take hold of it. I mean, think about it. Man, what's wrong with you people, Israel? God's been here with you, moving in your midst, working on your behalf. He's shown himself over and over to be your faithful waymaker from Egypt till now, even through the middle of the sea. He's performed mighty miracles to protect you and provide for your every need. He's kept every promise. And every aspect of your life has been worked out expressly for him to keep his covenant promises to your fathers before you. He has never failed. You know by teaching and experience that he is incapable of failing, and yet you're more concerned about the giants in the land. You're more concerned with your own inability to see how it can possibly work out. Honestly, we aren't that much different, are we? I fear, however, that we don't realize just how serious the matter is. As we are working through this today, this passage is governed by one core reality. When we trust in ourselves instead of the Lord, we receive His wrath instead of His blessing. When we trust in ourselves instead of the Lord, we receive His wrath instead of His blessing. There were a bunch of different ways that I was trying to say this. They all seemed nicer than this one. But I think they missed the point. It's easy for us to look at it and say, boy, if they had more faith, they could have had that blessing. The blessing is right there. They just needed more faith. Yes, but that's only part of the point. God saw their lack of faith, their faithlessness, as wicked idolatry, wickedness, a rejection of him. He actually says they treated him with contempt in this. They lived in opposition. Now, don't forget that in the first nine, ten chapters, all we see is obedience and good stuff. God's setting them up, right? So we start with the census. He orders and organizes them, prepares them for what is ahead. He's, he's arranged the camps for battle. And what's more, he has arranged every aspect of their lives around him at the center. He put the tabernacle at the center of the nation and all the camps encircled it by God's design according to his instructions and we saw over and over and over again the people did all that the Lord commanded through Moses. Good stuff. Man, it was great. They're walking so faithfully or so it seems because they're still in camp. That's easy. Now, don't misunderstand the nations around them aren't doing that. 
They are doing what God said because they're in a covenant relationship with God. He's called them to it. He's made himself known to them. He's appeared to them. He's led them to this place in a pillar of cloud and a, a pillar of fire at night. And he continues to do that throughout Numbers. He's provided for them. He's given them manna since they first left, left Egypt. He gave them manna. He gave them quail on that, that uh, first exit. And now they're ready to set out. The beginning of chapter 11, the first three verses, right? This, I mean, you've got all of this obedience. The first three verses, they experience the friction of following. They break camp. They start to walk, and it's hard. And they grumble against the Lord. And the Lord gets angry with them. And fire breaks out at the outskirts of the camp. And people suffer consequences of their grumbling strike one well then almost immediately the very next passage that we have here it may not there may be time elapsing but but as we see this play out the lord has led moses to arrange these stories in such a way to make it very clear that they go from the grumbling and the the at least partial repentance and god's mercy to them to more grumbling. Now it's, oh man, manna again? That's all we ever have is manna. Can't we get some pizza or something? You know, this is terrible. We were better off in Egypt. It's amazing how quick they were to go to that. The, the, the second occasion of their grumbling, the first thing they say is, man, when we were slaves in Egypt, we had fish, we had leeks and onions and garlic and cucumbers. And we didn't even have to pay for it. Um, you're slaves, but never mind. And God gives them what they asked for, but not as a blessing, as a judgment against them. You want meat? No problem. I'm going to bring in meat, and you're going to eat it. And you're going to eat it and eat it and eat it until it comes out your nostrils. There's a lot of sarcasm in so then they get through this situation and, and God hits them with the plague in the middle of that while it's still in their teeth and, and many die. There's consequences. Strike two. And right after this, we see Miriam and Aaron rising up against Moses out of jealousy. Hasn't God spoken through us too? Has he only spoken through Moses? So much so that they attack his wife. They're, they start to badmouth his marriage. They don't care about the marriage. They're upset that he's getting the attention and they're not. But he's really not. They're the ones with eyes on him. His eyes are on the Lord. And he's directing the attention of the people to the Lord. But their eyes are on him and they're filled with jealousy. Then we get to this section. God deals with that. Miriam gets leprosy. Aaron is overwhelmed with remorse and they they repent and God heals her and restores her and God doesn't let the people leave remember God's the one guiding them and doesn't let the people leave until she's been cleansed and restored God disciplines his children but he doesn't leave them behind and now after all that has happened we come to chapter 13 
It's an interesting dynamic that we see here. This story represents the core reality of the entire book of Numbers. If you're taking notes, you can mark this down. The core reality of the entire book of Numbers is right here. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to His promises. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to His promises. <clears throat> Excuse me one moment here. If I don't set this timer, I'm never going to get out of here because there's a lot to say. As, they're, as they come to this place, this is, this is the turning point, right? This is where God says, here, you're at the door. I'm ready to bring you in. And instead, they end up spending 40 years. They, chapter, chapter 15 should be them coming in to the promised land. Chapter 15 should be the book of Joshua. But it's not. Instead, they wander around the wilderness while the bodies hit the floor. This is what's going on. Verses 1 and 2, God tells Moses to send scouts into Canaan. We say spies, and spies gives us a particular idea uh, and I think probably more accurate is scouts. So the, the scout is the one who goes first to set up the battle or to, to plot out the land. And these guys, aren't, they're not going there you know, to, to you know, be covert operatives. It's not KGB, CIA kind of stuff, spy versus spy. They're going in to scout out the land. And Moses gives them very clear instructions about figuring out what's going on there. It's interesting, though, uh, Numbers, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, Moses reveals to us that it's the people who led to this, that they were clamoring to, to have them send spies, to know. They wanted to know. God had told them, here it is, I'm bringing you here, I'm taking care of you, now we're at the door, let's go get it. And the people all were like, Moses, Moses, hey, hold up here. We need some recon. we got to get this figured out. And the Lord here tells Moses, yeah, go ahead. Send the spies in. Have them spy out the land. Have them scout this. And come back with the report. So he gives them a pretty clear report of what that is. He sends them out. There are 12 listed. We don't like to skip things like uh, these lists, but because the passage was so long that we are reading today for the sake of time, you can read it on your own. But it's interesting that, that as you look at the list of the 12, uh, if you have an NIV, it, it uh, makes it a little easier to read. The ESV makes it just part of the text. But <clears throat> as, you, uh, as you look at this, there's a name from each of these tribes each of them is a chief among these tribes and they're there to represent the people we've seen that already in the census we've see that pretty regularly that god sets up representatives there's a there's a federal headship that goes on within the family within the the tribe within the nation of israel within the church Adam is our federal head for all of us. He represents us, and in Adam, we all sin. We inherit that sin nature, but he was our representative, and when he fell, we all fell. So here, these spies that go out, they, 
they represent the people. And as we'll see, that's a pretty accurate representation. Their lack of faith is a pretty good depiction of the unfaithful hearts of the people who are so quick to turn on God and want to go back to Egypt. So we see in, in verses 3 to 16 the listing of them. And Moses sends them out of the Lord's, Lord's command. Notice two of them in particular. We see um, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. This is in verse 6. Comes from the tribe of Judah. Anytime you see the tribe of Judah, you're going to want to pay special attention. The tribe of Judah is the ruling tribe. That's the tribe that will hold the scepter. It's the tribe of Judah from which we get David and from whom we find our Lord Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's a special place that Judah has in the ruling history and future of Israel. We want to make sure that we recognize that, that royal line in Judah. But a little bit farther down uh, in, in verse 8, we see Hosea, the son of Nun. He's from the tribe of Ephraim, which will later be used often as a synonym for Israel. So Ephraim sends Hosea. It's interesting, Moses changes his name or gives him a nickname. He calls him Joshua. It's the same. Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form and Joshua is the Hebrew form. Hosea and Joshua are closely related. Now, I didn't know this until this week. It caught my attention. Hosea is kind of like a prayer. Hosea means something like, may the Lord save. Joshua is the answer to the prayer. The Lord will save. The Lord saves us. Jesus is the answer to our prayers. The Lord saves us through Christ. So Joshua now, as Moses is dealing with him, he moves this forward. And there's sort of a prophetic nature to it that, that his parents wanted him to rely upon the Lord. May the Lord save. Hosea was a meaningful name. And now Moses calls him, the Lord saves. The Lord is about to deliver on all the promises that he's been making to the patriarchs down through the ages to this moment. That he would make a great nation out, out of Abraham. That he would bring them into this land flowing with milk and honey. He's been telling them that they would possess lands that have vineyards they didn't plant. Fields they didn't tend. Houses they didn't build fortified cities that they didn't build, and God's going to give it all to them. Here they come, and the spies check it out, and that's exactly what they find. All they got to do is go in and take it. But what they see in addition to that is an obstacle to God fulfilling the promise. Now, I have to think, maybe this has already occurred to you, it probably felt like an obstacle when they were fleeing the Egyptian army coming on chariots and horses. The mightiest army in the world, by the way. 
That was the superpower, the dominant empire for thousands of years during this period was Egypt. They come to the Red Sea eh, thinking it's probably an obstacle. Not a problem for God. God says, hey, Mo, hold your stick out. There goes the water. Um, this is weird. Okay, we're going to walk through on dry land. Pretty sure if God can do that, dealing with these tribal chieftains is not going to be a problem. Oh, but they're big and they're strong. Oh, okay, God's not. Um, hello, I'm God. I created everything. I delivered you from the most powerful army on the planet. And you're afraid of some tribal chieftains because they're tall? Okay. Not going to go well here. So they, they send, they, he sends them out. He gives them instructions where to go and what they're supposed to, to gather for information. And uh, Notice as, as we see what Moses says there, he's not saying... He never asks the question, if we can do it. He doesn't tell the spies, go see if we can handle this. Go see if they're too tough. See if, see if there are many. See if, these, if they have fortified cities or if they're open. Yeah, check their strength. See what the land is. But he doesn't say, figure out if we can do this. Because Moses already knows. God said it. We're going to do it. End of the story. Pretty simple. It has never failed them yet. But here we are. So they explored, and then uh, they get to the Valley of Eshkol. Eshkol uh, means cluster, and so they name it after this giant grape cluster that they bring back. One grape cluster had to be carried by two men on a pole. That's kind of big. All right? They get back, and notice in verses 27 to 29 of chapter 13, they give this report. Now, when you read it, to start with, you should feel the surprise. All right, so uh, verse 27, they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Sounds awesome, right? Pretty exciting. Then there's that huge, glaring, painful, However, it's the big but here in the middle of the story. However, the people who dwell in the land, uh, they're strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw descendants of Anak there. Giants. Anak was a giant. These are the tribes that came from his line. They were part of the Nephilim line. And so as you see this picture... They're terrified. And then there are too many. Look at verse 29. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, in the valley. They're, they're down, uh, down here. We really can't go there because the Amalekites are there. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, they dwell in the hill country. And if you go over by the sea and along the Jordan, you've you got the Canaanites. Not only are, are, are they too strong, the Anakites are, are too strong, but we've got all these other people. Here, we can't, there's too many, we can't deal with it. How quickly we forget the way maker. Caleb is a little bit different, verse 30. 
He quieted the people before Moses and said, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. He doesn't debate anything that they said. He doesn't say, oh, no, they're fine. They're fine. They're, they're, just, they're not that big. You're just, you know, they were on a hill. You were standing in a hole. They just seemed big, right? Dude, let's go. We got this. He clarifies a little later on what he means by that. But he says, let's, let's go do this. No way, we can't. That's a great response, right? No, no, Caleb. We're not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we are. I'm reminded of the first Avengers movie when Loki says, I have an army. And Tony Stark says, we have a Hulk. It's that kind of a vibe, right? They're stronger than we are. Uh, we have God. Does that really seem like a contest? This is a non-issue. All right, let me press on. Uh, beginning of chapter 14, the people wept. There's a lot of weeping that goes on. And, and, and this is the same type of weeping that happened uh, in chapter 11 when they had the craving. We, we, we're, so, we're so consumed with our craving, with our lust of the flesh, with what we want in this. We need meat. We need something besides the stupid manna. So much so that they wept together as families at the doors of their tents. And if you know anything about uh, Near Eastern, Middle Eastern weeping and wailing, uh, you know this was not just a, a little tear trickling down their cheek. This was an outcry, an outrage. How could this be? And the people wept. They poured out their emotions. We can't do it. God doesn't love us. We should go back. Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. God doesn't love us. He's not looking out for us. We're in danger. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Always a great call. They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes so now we're not just having a debate. Now we're getting into the, the deep emotional part of it. The people are weeping. Oh, it's so terrible. God doesn't love us. we got to go back. Moses and Aaron are taken down by this. I don't know if they fell on their faces out of fear of the crowd. I think it's more likely that they fell down out of fear of the Lord. The people have turned against God and they recognize it. Aaron just learned his lesson a moment ago and here we are. He gets it now. Joshua and Caleb, who had gone and seen the same things the other spies saw, now they tear their clothes. And they say to all the congregation of the people of Israel, verse 7, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. <laughs> the people see giants. Joshua and Caleb just see a bigger meal. It's, they're not going to devour us. We're going to eat them up. These people are done. They have zero chance. They're like bread for us. You're worried about these warriors? Let's go. But notice he continues explaining why. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. They're calling it as it is. This is what this faithlessness is. It's rebellion against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Notice the reaction of the people in verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. That is not a pleasant reaction. I'm just, I'm just going to tell you, in case you thought maybe the people would be appreciative of this inspiring, encouraging, rousing halftime speech that they give them here. No, they want to kill them. They want to stone them with stones. And the only thing that stops them is the second half of verse 10. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of, the meet, at, at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the, pestil with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. It's an interesting thing to see here. The Lord's had enough. This is strike three. There's a building that has happened here. There's a grumbling, there's a craving, and now they are even rejecting the blessing of the Lord because they can only see through their own eyes of flesh. They're leaning on their own ability to comprehend the situation, their own ability to defend themselves and win the battle and go in and do what is necessary. That's why our memory verse for today is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's written in your program for you from the NIV. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. It doesn't mean there won't be giants in the land. It means the Lord will handle it. He's got it taken care of. Delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. When we no longer are putting our focus on the things of this world and our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, our ability to understand our circumstances or see how God's going to work it out, when we get our focus on Him, when we raise our gaze so that we're not looking on the horizontal plane at all the stuff here, then God makes it clear. He doesn't explain it. He didn't explain it to Job, did he? If God would just show up, you all would see, I haven't done anything wrong, just bad things are happening to me, and I'll plead my case before the Lord. And the Lord shows up and says, Hey, Job, who the heck are you? What do you know? 
And Job says, Lord, I'm sorry. I spoke about things that were beyond my pay grade. I'm going to sit down and shut up. You be God and I'll just be me. Which is really the entire lesson of the book of Job. God doesn't condemn him for it, but he doesn't explain to him what we know went on behind the scenes. That God was doing something bigger. And he doesn't always explain it to us. He doesn't give give them this great answer. Hey, listen, I know you see all these, these people here, but here's how I'm going to defeat them. We'll see this in other battles later on. In the book of Judges, we see Gideon take an army that just it's too strong and so God takes it down to 300 men and he doesn't tell them how he's going to do it it's an impossible task God is giving him mark this down in your mind if not on your paper God is giving him more than he can handle how many times have you heard God won't give you more than you can handle I'm here to tell you read the Bible God is in the business of giving you more than you can handle all the time. That's the point. Because it's not too much for him to handle, and you weren't supposed to handle it in the first place. You're just supposed to trust him and be faithful. That's all we were ever supposed to do. That's all we were supposed to do in the garden. That's all we're supposed to do in keeping the law. If we did that, we wouldn't need the law, which is exactly what Jesus says. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with every part of your being period. That's it. God is everything. And everything else falls behind. That just doesn't even matter. Love the Lord. Period. If you do that, the expression of that will be loving your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, according to your love for the Lord, you're not going to do your neighbor any wrong. So then we don't need the rest of the commandments to tell you not to do this and not to do this and don't do that and never do that. Because you already don't. Because your love for the Lord and your love for the neighbor is driving you. Now, the people see this. They see giants. And they've hardened their hearts now after persistent unbelief. We've seen them grumble. We've seen them crave the things of the world back in Egypt. Now they're questioning God's goodness. In fact, they've been questioning God's goodness God doesn't love us enough to give us meat. He just gives us a stupid manna. Sick of looking at it. God's not able to provide for us. And he's not good enough to want to provide for us. Now they get here, God's showing them. They didn't have enough faith to just go in, Deuteronomy 1 tells us. So they're clamoring for a scouting report, for a a recon. God gives it to them. And instead of saying, Wow, this is awesome. This is exactly what God described. I can't wait. Instead, they say, oh, giants, got to go. I'm out. All right. I've taken too much time here, so we've got to press forward. Let's see some key concepts here. By the way, in case I didn't make it clear enough, don't miss out on the fact that the Lord is asking, how long will they hold me in contempt? How long will they despise me? Their lack of faith is rejecting God. They probably don't see it that way. They think they're still following the Lord. We just, you know, we don't understand it, so we're going to go back this way. The Lord did something that's not really right. They're not saying, we hate God. 
Sometimes we get in our minds that the only way that we reject God is by saying, I hate God. I, I, no, I no longer, I'm deconstructing. I'm an ex-evangelical. I, I no longer believe in, in Jesus Christ. I no longer believe that he's the only way. That's not the rejection that's required. You don't have to say, I renounce Jesus Christ. I hate him. Your faith, or more specifically, your lack of faith, not trusting him enough to do what he says, is implicit. Rejection of God. I'm going to say that again. When we don't trust God enough to do what he says, that is implicit rejection of God. I am elevating my own way. I'm exalting my own way. I'm putting myself, my way of thinking, on the throne and pushing God out. When I think I can be saved through my good works, I'm elevating my efforts and pushing God off the throne. That's what this is. All right, now let's look at some key concepts. First thing, the Lord has wonderful blessings in store for those who rest in his covenant that those who do not can never receive. I wanted to make that a little more concise, but... Uh, if you were with us uh, in the Bible study, we're trying to make a statement here. We want to be clear, complete, and concise. And I felt like uh, I needed to be a little more complete and give up a little bit of concise. The Lord has wonderful blessings in store for those who rest in his covenant that those who do not can never receive. The land was everything God said. Seeing the promised land should have bolstered their faith in God because it was all that he had said it would be. Instead, because they were only leaning on their own understanding, all they could focus on were the giants, the obstacles, the danger, the potential failure. If their focus had been on the reality of God, the might of the adversary would have been irrelevant to them. Let me say that one more time. If their focus had been on the reality of God, the might of the adversary would have been irrelevant to them. The enemy would have been just as mighty. There would have been just as many people. They would have been just as big. But it wouldn't have mattered because their focus would have been on the reality of who God is. They would have seen God for who he is, great and good. And remember that he had already done for them greater things than this. Again, he delivered them out of the hands of the mighty empire of Egypt. Tribal chieftain's not going to be a problem. But they were overwhelmed with their fear because they were trusting themselves instead of the Lord. Notice the ne next thing here. The Lord is patient with our weakness, but wicked unfaithfulness will not go unpunished. The Lord is patient with our weakness, but wicked unfaithfulness will not go unpunished. Trusting our own understanding of things over the Lord is wicked idolatry. I want to push you a little bit on that. We don't usually think of it that way. We, we tend to excuse ourselves. It's just a little... God says it's a big thing. God's patient with our weakness. We see that, again, if the people are too fearful to go into the land and they clamor for Moses to send scouts, God obliges. 
And there's no indication here that him sending them, uh, sending these scouts in is like when God said, you're going to eat quail for a month until it's coming out your nose. There's no indication of that tone of judgment. There's no consequence to it. There doesn't appear to be anything sinful in it. They're just too weak in their faith to do this thing without a little more reassurance, and God is patient with them. Do you realize how often we doubt? I don't know, I don't know if you do. Because a lot of times we only pay attention to the big doubts, the doubts that make us feel bad. But we have little doubts all the time where we tend to get caught up in this world as if this world is the reality. Real easy, obvious one. I'm sick of saying it. How often do you get worked up over politics? Isn't that the same thing? Isn't that getting focused on the things of this world as if that's the answer? And I can get worked up over politics as much or more than most people. But when I let it get to me, it's a lack of faith. It's a weakness that I need to get under control. And God is patient with our weakness. The problem becomes when that weakness becomes something that, that we let take control. When God gets pushed to the back seat. Trusting our own understanding of things instead of trusting the Lord. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not just weakness. It's wicked idolatry. And I need to crucify that. I need to tear down the idols. And whatever it is that I'm putting my hope, my trust in, apart from God's word, is working against me. And it needs to be slain. Next point here. If the Lord is, is patient with our weakness, but he judges, he punishes wicked unfaithfulness, we need to understand this this key thing. The reality of fear is inevitable. The reality of fear is inevitable. Failure to trust the Lord is a choice. Some of you are already saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. I don't buy it. The reality of fear is inevitable. Failure to trust the Lord is a choice. Fear is something we feel. Everybody feels it. Some more than others. Some for different reasons than others. But everybody feels fear. You don't generally get a choice about it. Fear is something we feel, whereas faith is something we do. Something we choose. Wait a minute, preacher just said faith is something we do. He's talking about a works kind of salvation. He's a legalist. No, man, not at all, but read the Bible. Faith, this is the, the entire point of the book of James, by the way. For your homework, take a look at James chapter 2, uh, Verses are listed there for you, but take a look at James chapter 2. James develops this idea. He's not saying that Paul is wrong, that we're justified by faith. He's not saying that Isaiah is wrong, that we're justified by faith. That Habakkuk is wrong, that we're justified by faith. What he's saying is, if your faith is just words, it's not really faith. If your faith doesn't do something, it doesn't mean anything. It's like if, you know, if I tell my wife I love her, but I'm unwilling to take out the trash. I don't really love her. I'm just flapping my gums. i got to back it up. Or it doesn't 
actually exist. Faith is something we do. Fear is universal. But cowardice is sin. Fear is universal, but cowardice is sin. Cowardice is the choice to let fear be the idol to which we bow. This is the difference between cowardice and fear. I'm going to feel fear, but as you've so often heard me quote from the great 20th century theologian John Wayne, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Faith is seeing all the things that cause me to feel fear and saying, nonetheless, I will follow the Lord. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and that's a lot, and maybe my favorite verse or one of my two favorite verses in the book of Job is when Job's being pushed, he's being questioned. How, why, why don't you just you know, stand down? His, the, the one thing he keeps in his life is his wife saying, why don't you just curse God and die? It makes you wonder, did the Lord keep her or did the devil? I don't know. Anyway, but Job says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. No matter what God brings into my life, even if he were to kill me, it will be my joy to do it for him. That's faith. Job was miserable. Anybody who tells you otherwise didn't read the book. He was unhappy. He complained. He did not sit there with the, you know, the patience of Job. We seem to say, oh yeah, thanks God for taking everything away from me. No, he was overwhelmed, the same as you and I would be. But he didn't turn against God. The Israelites are on the precipice of everything they could have imagined and more. And they turn against God. That's the difference. Fear is something you feel. It, it comes, it goes, it passes. Cowardice is the choice to let that fear become the idol to which you bow. When we trust our feelings more than we trust our Father, we find ourselves with cowardice. Faith acknowledges the fearful circumstances and recognizes God as bigger. He is great that means he is he's able, he is huge, he is vast, he is limitless. Many of you grew up with the common table prayer, God is great, God is good. Let's thank him for our food. Unless you watch Laverne and Shirley where they make it rhyme. But we can so often let that be trite. That's a powerful reality. God is great. He is able to do all things. He is big. He is vast. He created the universe. He doesn't, he doesn't just exist in the universe. He is beyond it. Let that sink in for just a second. We can't even find the outside of the universe to know if there is one. And God is beyond it. He is also good that means not only is he able to take care of us, he is willing, he loves us. The things that he brings into our, our lives, even the hard and terrible things, are for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. He is great and he is good. To view him any other way is heinous blasphemy, which is why unfaithfulness is a wicked thing. It's, it's idolatry. 
The reality of fear is inevitable. Failure to trust the Lord is a choice. Next point. The goal of faithful, effective prayer is God's glory. The goal of faithful, effective prayer is God's glory. In verses 11 to 12, the Lord says, How long will they hold me in contempt? I'll destroy them and make a greater, stronger nation for Moses, which he most certainly and clearly could have done. And Moses pleads with God to spare them for the sake of his name and for his glory among the nations. It was God's mercy that told Moses that he planned to destroy them and make a greater nation out of them. Think about that for a second. God didn't have to tell him. He could have just done it. God did what he planned to do. And it was his mercy that told Moses in the first place because in the telling, Moses was moved to pray. Now, God could have done exactly what he said and still kept his promise to Abraham. Moses was a descendant of Abraham just like the rest of them. So it would not have been that God was breaking his covenant with Abraham. He would still be keeping his promise. But I don't need all y'all. I'm just going to take Moses and start over and make a better Israel. And Moses could have gloried in that and said, Huh, okay, that's going to put me on the same level as Abraham. God's going to show me that kind of favor? Thank you, Lord. What a blessing. That's not what he did, though. If God had followed through on this threat, it would not in any way have violated his covenant. Nonetheless, it induced Moses to pray, thus putting God in a position to pardon the people. Which he does. He pardons Israel. He doesn't wipe out everyone and start over. He pardons them, but not without meeting out justice to the rebels. We'll get to that in a minute. For his part, Moses prays on behalf of the people, but more importantly, he prays on behalf of God's glorious name. It shows us where his focus was in contrast to the unbelieving masses. He's not praying for himself. He's not just praying out of compassion for the people. If you'll remember just a minute ago, he's saying, Lord, just kill me now. I don't want to deal with these people anymore. I can't, nope, can't do it. They're not mine. I didn't give birth to these people. Lord, if you love me, just kill me. That's not why he's praying for the people. He says, Lord, if you do this thing, if you wipe them out as as if they were one man, the Egyptians are going to hear the people who have been hearing of your renown are going to hear and think it's because God wasn't able to deliver that he slayed them in the wilderness. Lord, for the sake of your glory, for your reputation among the pagans, Lord, show the mercy and compassion that you're known for. Be who you are. That kind of prayer, a prayer According to God's will, focused on God's glory, this is what it means to pray in Jesus' name, on his behalf, for the sake of the kingdom, according to his will. It's a prayer that's focused on God's glory, not just getting stuff. That is the key. It's the goal of faithful, effective prayer, God's glory. Next, mark this down. Lack of faith is habit-forming. 
Lack of faith is habit forming, so is trusting God. Lack of faith is habit forming, so is trusting God. Whichever we engage in becomes easier the next time. It's not hard to figure that out, right? That's the same with any habit that we have. It's the way we work. Every alcoholic started with one drink, right? Every tobacco addict started with one puff. That's how it works. And the next one gets easier. How many times have we said in our lives, in a variety of circumstances, I'll never do that again. Just this one time. It's not that big a deal. Just this one time, I'll never do that again. Lord, I'm so sorry that I did this. I will never do that again. But the next time, the decision comes a little more easily until it just becomes normalized in our lives. In the same way, trusting God or not trusting God becomes a habit. Notice how this has built up in the children of Israel. It was a hard march for three days, for three days. Now they get 40 years, not a great trade. They get a little friction as they start moving, and they grumble. Instead of focusing on the Lord and praying, they complain in the hearing of the Lord. That was one. And then the next craving, the grumbling, becomes more of them doing more of it. It's more intense. They're developing a habit. Until now, when they get to this place where everything is about to go great, they're in the habit of trusting their own understanding more than trusting God's word. So there's giants. Faith says, there's huge grapes. There's fortified cities. This is awesome. Faith, the faith of Moses and Caleb and Joshua, that kind of faith says, there's giants in the land. Think of how God will be glorified when he delivers us, when he brings us in and wipes them out as he promised. Look at how great the glory of God will be. He's not taking on the JV team. He's wiping everybody out the way he did with Egypt because God is that awesome. Praise God. That's a whole different faith than the people that said, well, yeah, there's what God promised. Uh, I don't think so. Different dynamic, and it becomes a habit for us. It's interesting that Caleb and Joshua saw the same things as the other ten. They all had the same, uh, <clears throat> they all had the same facts to report but they drew different conclusions based on their different frames of reference. Caleb was not innately braver than the others. Let me say that again because I don't want us to miss it. It's not like, you know, a lot of times we get the little action figures of Bible heroes, that kind of thing. Not that he was this great hero of the Bible because of his innate bravery. He simply followed God with his whole heart. He knew just the same as they did that they were outmanned. He wasn't dumb. When Caleb said, we can certainly do it, he knew it wasn't them doing it. He knew they were out, man, but he also knew that they were never supposed to be relying on their own strength in the first place. If God promised to take them in and give them the land, then they had nothing to worry about. It's habit forming. That was his practice, was trusting God. Therefore, when the big moment came, because he had trusted God in little things along the way, trusting God in the big things was a lot easier to do. Joshua the same, Moses the same, you and I the same. Trust God in the little things. Do the little obediences. 
And the bigger ones become easier because you form a habit. Notice this also. The people hated Caleb and Joshua for speaking the truth about God and about their situation. They hated them so much that they were ready to stone them until God shows up to stop them. It's a little like kids acting foolish when a grown-up walks in and everything comes to a screeching halt. People living in opposition to God's will are prone to hate those who confront them with it. This is why the church will and must receive persecution in the world. If the church, this is not in the script, but I'm going to say it loudly and I'm going to probably say it twice. If the church is not being persecuted by the world, it is because the church does not stand out from the world. If the church is not being persecuted by the world, it's because we look too much like them. They love us when we look like them. Now, I'm not telling you go be like a, uh, I'll use the term fundamental, it's the stereotypical term that we're using, even though we use it wrong. Don't be the, the, the guy that's going to go out there and just be offensive, be a jerk and pick at everything and everybody's bad and all this, you know, sinner, 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 all these people. But be different in your holy living. That's what we're called to. Live such good lives among the pagans that you don't have to preach at them because your life does it. Then you can preach to them with the loving truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. But if you stand out from the world, if you are simply honest about the truth of who God is and our situation, the world will hate you. The unbelieving world forms habits too. Lack of faith is habit forming. So is trusting God. Let me summarize this. When we trust in ourselves instead of the Lord, we receive his wrath instead of his blessing. When we trust ourselves instead of the Lord, we receive his wrath instead of his blessing. If we will not trust God, we will not receive his blessing. Trusting our eyes instead of our Lord costs us everything. On the contrary, Trusting the Lord to save and bless us is the only way to be saved and blessed. So we need to recognize, how does this passage point us to Christ? Christ is our covenant relationship with God. Christ is our covenant relationship with God, received by faith, we choose to rest in Him. When you are striving against yourself and the world and all the things that you perceive in your wisdom to work your way into God's good graces, you are rejecting the covenant relationship He offers us in Christ. It's idolatry. Christ is our covenant relationship. We cannot rest in our relationship with him unless we are in a relationship with him. Right? Makes sense, doesn't it? This is why it's so important for us to recognize that to be saved, we are saved by grace, by what Jesus did on the cross for us, proved by his resurrection, 
And we take hold of that by faith, by trusting him enough to do what God says. That's it. And then this great gift of eternal life produces fruit in our life by the Holy Spirit in us. Our discipleship involves learning to choose to trust the one who sent his son for us, no matter how our fears might shake us. God has demonstrated his love for us in Christ. Those who reject him by trusting our own understanding face God's wrath. Fears and doubts aren't really the issue. The issue is whether we trust the Lord and obey or trust our own feelings or wisdom and rebel. That's where faith is revealed. So what do I need to do in light of the truth of this passage? Well, I don't know. Because I'm not you. But the Lord will reveal it to you if you will ask Him. Maybe you need to repent and receive Christ. Maybe you've never done that. You might have gone to church your whole life, but again, you know, sitting in the barn doesn't make you a cow. Right? Maybe you need to say, Lord, I'm, I'm done living my way. I'm giving myself to you. I trust that Jesus Christ paid for all of my sin to make me right with you. Maybe you've done that. You need to make some discipleship choices about how to deal with your own fears and your faith. You've let fears be an idol to you for too long. You felt them, but instead of turning them over to the Lord in obedience, you bowed down as if they were an idol. And you rejected what God has offered. Maybe you are a believer, but you need to make those discipleship choices about how to deal with your fears and your faith. Or maybe you just simply lost sight of the glory of God's grace toward you. You need to take a look at the promised land and see the wonderful things that he has for those who will rest in their covenant relationship with him. And you might need to just return to what you once knew. That's why we do things like the Remembrance Celebration Communion that we'll do here in a few moments. This is what the Lord has called us to. He gives us these sacred ceremonies to remind us, to call us back, to return to what we once knew, to go back to basics and rejuvenate our faith so that we learn not to trust the feelings of fear but to trust and obey our Father. It's my prayer for you today that you will have a bigger picture of who God is and lead a, gain from it a truer understanding of what it means to trust Him so that you can lead a life of faith and obedience to Him. Let's pray. Father, this is your time. I pray that each one of us now would be focused on you. Not on the things around us, not on the things that we have coming up this afternoon or the distractions, certainly not on the voice of the enemy telling us to reject what we see in your word. But Father, help us to listen to your Holy Spirit as you convict us, as you change us, as you transform us to make us more like Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. 
We thank you for the sacrifice of your son to give us life in his name. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.